Section 5 of Camden's Compliments to Walt Whitman by Various. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Letters Over Sea, Over Land From an article by Edward Burtz Berlin, June 2, 1889 Walt Whitman was born May 31, 1819 at West Hills on Long Island in the state of New York, and we now celebrate his finishing his 70th year. A paralytic stroke broke down his former robust constitution many years ago, but through all sufferings he has preserved a calm, cheerful soul, while his mind has conserved its youthful freshness. What he wrote appears in two volumes, his poems in Leaves of Grass and his prose in Specimen Days and Collect. This is merely a commemoration of his jubilee. If these lines should reach him across the sea, they may express the wish to our august friend that the love he devoted to the hundred thousand wounded and sick soldiers, north and south, during three years of war, on the fields and in hospitals, may be partially reciprocated by devoted friends in his age and affliction. Love is the foundation of his poetry, and will as surely continue to bear its fruit during ensuing centuries as other great ideas have done heretofore. While from our half-barbaric civilization his own consoling words will sweetly compel the hearing of future generations. Over the carnage rose prophetic a voice. Be not disheartened. Affections shall solve the problems of freedom yet. Those who love each other shall become invincible. They shall yet make Columbia victorious. Hallam Tennyson, from his father, Lord Tennyson, to H. H. Gilchrist, Farringford, Freshwater, Isle of Wight, June twenty-second, 1889. My father has been yachting in the sunbeam. He thanks you for your letter. He is not up to writing. Your banquet and speech seem to have been a great success. All congratulations. William M. Rossetti, 5 Ensley Gardens, London, Northwest, England, June 7, 1889. I am obliged for your letter of 24 May and closing a program of the Whitman Testimonial or dinner in honor of Walt Whitman, which was fixed for 31 May, the 70th anniversary of his birth, and inviting me to send some expression touching the season and the man. I will only say that I most heartily sympathize in any demonstration of honor and love towards this great and good American, a man who, whilst specially and personally American in all his feelings, thoughts, and utterances, has, beyond almost all men in literature, gone down to the roots of the human heart and spoken the word for all the world. I myself always have honored and loved him, and always shall do so. I consider him to be preeminent among the sons of men for a large human nature, broad, deep, and glowing and for the power of giving the deepest and most universal expression to the deepest and most universal feelings. With heart and with mind he embraces more than other men do, and with voice he proclaims more. This is, I think, his great and admirable excellence as writer or poet, and is quite enough for numbering Whitman among the great poetic souls of the world. Whatever may be his qualifications in point of form or of diction. On this matter, were to I express my exact opinion, I could say a good deal, partly to praise and partly to demur, but it is a subordinate, though far from an unimportant matter, and for the present I leave it alone. Honor and love to Walt Whitman. This tribute is due from Americans, from Englishmen, and from all races of men be they the foremost or the backward races. Gabriel Sarazin, Paris, France, written from 67 George Street, Euston Road, London, 
Northwest, England, June 12, 1889. Kindly excuse me for not earlier responding to the letter in which you announced the celebration of the 70th anniversary of Walt Whitman's birth in Camden. Your message found me in London, where I came to pass a month, and I would have wished to write you as soon as I received it, but my health is not always good, and sometimes does not permit me to do what I desire. If I had been with you on the 31st of May last, this, in substance, is what I would have said in restatement of my views upon the works of the noble poet. Walt Whitman is, in my opinion, one of the only two living beings, the other is Count Leon Tolstoy, to whom is applicable the name of Apostle. And if I could permit myself to make a comparison between two men equally great, I would not hesitate to place Whitman one degree above Tolstoy. Notwithstanding the evangelical goodness of the latter, there is in him too much philosophical pessimism, and Whitman seems to have a wider and surer outlook. He is the only man who has absolutely known that man is an indivisible fragment of the universal divinity, that the heart of a man truly pious knows how to humble itself without appeal to the adoration of the cosmos, and that instead of losing himself in useless dissertations on the greater or less superiority of this tradition or that religious confession or some other, a man would do much better to love and to serve truly his fellow creatures. That is the whole of divinity, because who loves his fellows loves God. This view, of which Whitman has been, in this era, the practical apostle, this view will renovate the world. Such, dear sir, is what I would have said if I had been among you on the 31st of May last. And then I would have lifted, in my turn, my glass, wishing very long life to the august old man, and assuring him of my love. Please, dear sir, transmit to all the friends of Walt Whitman and Camden my sentiments of cordial sympathy, and believe me, also, very sincerely yours. T. W. Rolleston, Dublin, Ireland, June 8, 1889 you invite me to contribute a word of congratulation to the pamphlet which will commemorate Walt Whitman's attainment of his 70th birthday. I wish the praise and thanks I give him were better worth having, but he at least does not value such things solely for the distinction of the giver. I rejoice to think that my name will be linked with other worthier ones and with his, the worthiest of all, on this occasion. What I owe to him is among those best and largest things which are not to be defined in human speech. He it is who has rendered truly sweet and wholesome to me whatever else I have gained from life and literature. What a triumph of faith and sincerity is denoted by this celebration. It is well that the memory of the wide world's greatest friend should be linked with proud and joyful thoughts, not with those of pity and indignation. This is the gain which a life prolonged beyond the completion of his appointed task has brought to the many who now love him, and the multitudes who will do so. Give him, from one of the former, my hearty good wishes and congratulations. William Morris, Kelmscott House, Upper Mall, Hammersmith, London, England, June 11, 1889. I thank you for the opportunity you have given me to send my heartiest greetings to Walt Whitman. I have the greatest respect for a man who has shown himself at once so friendly and sympathetic and so independent. I look upon him as one of those men who may be called the material for poetry, men without whom poetry would denigrate into a mere literary trick, insincere and empty, valueless to all who set a true value on life, as our friend does. Once again, I beg you to give my greetings to Walt Whitman as a personal friend, although I have never seen him. Edward Dowden Dublin, Ireland, 
June 3rd, 1889. I rejoice greatly in the fact that at threescore years and ten Walt Whitman in Camden has that which should accompany old age, honor, love, obedience, troops of friends. We who are far away have a fraternal feeling towards his American friends and neighbors who have a care and reverence for the good gray poet. During some twenty years I have watched with interest the growth of his fame, and fame, Shelley tells us, is love disguised, in England and in other countries of Europe. And now the obstacles have yielded, and there are wide roads of access to what is best in his work. His elder years have rounded the work of his earlier manhood. His last volume shows him as the cheerful poet of old age, the cheerful poet of physical infirmity, while his earlier poems showed him especially as the poet of youth and lusty vitality. The later writings seem to me to reflect a beautiful light, clear and serene, on his previous work. And that light, we feel, comes from the man himself, whose whole bearing toward life, joys and sorrows, and evil repute, and good repute, and sickness and health, and manhood and old age, and towards not life alone, but also death, has been noble. May you and we join in 1899 to celebrate his 80th birthday, and may he bring us a few December faggots, then in succession to his November boughs. I know they will give pleasant welcome, and will sparkle cheerily, however dark may be the days. Mary Whittle Costello, London, England, June 25, 1889 I was away from home at the time your letter of May 25th came, and I have not been able to reply to it before. I regret the delay very much, as I should very much have liked to be included in the list of those who observed Mr. Whitman's birthday with respect and affectionate remembrance. But I fear I am altogether too late. I think I have learned to appreciate Mr. Whitman's work better in the four years I have been living in England. I have seemed to myself to reach a fairer judgment of American tendencies and of the spirit of the American democracy because I see them as compared with another civilization and a different set of political ideas. And I feel more sure now than I could have felt before that Walt Whitman's poems are the perfect artistic reflection of his country. You cannot really understand America without Walt Whitman, without leaves of grass. I should say, without America. He has expressed that civilization up to date, as he would say, and no student of the philosophy of history can do without him. I am not surprised that the English are quicker to recognize this than Americans themselves. And I think it is a tribute to the fidelity of his work for there is no task harder than to make people see themselves as they really are. England of the present day has no such exponent of her life and thought, nor do I know of any living writer unless it be Ibsen who has even made the effort to write the epic of his country's civilization. And Ibsen, with his special doctrines, is very different from Walt Whitman's Catholic acceptance and reproduction of all the tendencies, all the forces at work in America. Quite apart from its work as a teacher, as a cheerer of men's hearts, Leaves of Grass is an imperishable artistic monument of the most complex and the most hopeful civilization in the world. Personally, the privilege of knowing Walt Whitman has been always one of the greatest privileges of my life, and I can never cease to be grateful to him for his kindliness to me. It makes me very envious to think of you who can see him often. When you see him next, tell him, please, that I have said that a day never passes without our talking of him and wishing for his presence. Rudolf Schmidt, Copenhagen, Denmark, June 4, 1889 
I do not express myself with great ability in the English language, for which reason my testimonial in behalf of Walt Whitman must be very short. What I have to say about him as poet and thinker I have laid down in a published essay, which perhaps more nearly exhausts its great theme than many other subsequent essays to the same purpose. To me, democratic vistas is the far-shining pinnacle of all that Walt Whitman has done. These few sheets represent a whole literature. They range their author among the great seers of all time. These northern Scandinavian countries are perhaps the best field for such broad democratic views. Recently, a rector of a school in Slesorg wrote me that he had read my translation of Democratic Vistas again and again. He did not know how many times. Nordslesorgst Songesblad, the valiant champion of the Danish language as against the systematical Germanization of the old Danish province, published in May a whole series of articles on Walt Whitman. The sturdy Slesvig peasants know him very well. My deceased friend, Dr. Rosenberg, was among the antagonists of Walt Whitman. His son, Magistateti Andreas Rosenberg, my favorite scholar, has lately written a hymn to Walt Whitman that was reprinted in the above-named weekly, and his little son is baptized Walt. To me, the fact includes a symbol. Of course, I expect that you will communicate to Walt Whitman the tenor of this letter. It will, I hope, warm his old heart as a sunbeam. He has a right to say, Omen Ascipio. Today, the genius of the future is greeting him. Edward Carpenter, Millthorpe, near Chesterfield, England, May 18, 1889. Dear Walt, I now send you on, with loving remembrances and good wishes, our little contribution to the record of your birthday. From Bessie and Isabella Ford, William, Ethel, and Arthur Thompson, and myself. Glad that you notch another birthday among us, though I fear the time is often wearisome to you. The spring comes again with the cuckoo and the corncrake calling all day long, and the grass growing thick about our feet already, very early this year, and the trees all in leaf, the old vigor somewhere down, the perennial source which, even in extreme age, I guess people sometimes feel within them. I trust you have still good friends near you, and do not feel cut off from those that are remote. Ernest Rees has just sent me some lines or verses of greeting to you, but perhaps he will send them himself. I heard from Buck a fortnight ago telling me he had been with you. I have been weeding strawberries, and come in to write you these few lines. All goes well with me. I am brown and hearty, and though I live mostly alone, have more friends almost than a man ought to have. Some kind of promise keeps floating to us always, luring us on. With much love to you, dear Walt, as always. Edward Carpenter, London, England, June 4th, 1889. Many thanks for your note. We drink a health also here to the good poet, whom we do not forget, but think of him and love him just the same as ever. John Hay, London, England, June 18, 1889. I deeply regret that I was absent from the country on the day of your testimonial to my dear and honored old friend, Walt Whitman, and that I was not informed of your intentions in time to join my expressions of affection and regard to those of his hosts of friends. R. Pearsall Smith, London, England, June 4, 1889. Yours of May 24th did not reach me in season to telegraph a message for the dinner of the 31st to Walt Whitman. I am sorry that I could not be present with his other friends. 
John Burroughs, West Park, New York, May 30, 1889. Dear friends, I am with you in spirit on this occasion, if not in body. I should be with you in body also, but my body, these late years, is that of a farmer, reluctant to move, unused to festive halls and festive occasions, and mortgaged to a very exacting bit of land. But my heart is with you, and it is full of love for the glorious old poet whose seventieth birthday you have met to celebrate. There is no disguising the solicitude we have all felt about the state of his health in the past year, and in view of this fact, I think I may frankly congratulate you that you have come together to praise Caesar, and not to bury him. It is a source of great joy to me that he has reached this mountaintop of human years, not without weariness and a broken, faltering step the past decade, but with no abatement of his serenity, his hope, and the helpful cheer and courage of his spirit. Old age may be a valley leading down and down, as it has been so often depicted, but I always think of Walt Whitman as on the heights, and when I make my annual or semi-annual pilgrimage to visit him, I always find him on the heights, at least never in the valley of doubt and despond, or of spiritual decrepitude, always tonic and uplifting. Does he look like a man of valleys and shadows? Does he not rather look like a man of broad, high tablelands, where his spirit has always traveled, or of the shore, where the primordial ocean has breathed upon him and molded him? At any rate, the spirit which he has put into his poems is akin to these things and goes with the largest types and the most healthful and robust activity. It is hardly necessary for me to repeat at any length here what I have so often said about Whitman's poems. Let me name but one point, namely, that they offset and correct a strongly marked tendency among us, as a people, to over-refinement or attenuation of form. As a nation, we are quick, bright, ingenious, deft, but there is a decay of the broader and more fundamental human qualities. Our literature is thin and delicate. There is not enough blood and body and viscera in it. The character and conscience of the nation are a prey to our intellectual smartness and cleverness. In leaves of grass, these things are corrected. Here the type is large, robust, sympathetic, generous, and truly democratic. And this type is not didactically shown or exploited, but is dramatically illustrated. We see it moving and breathing, a living, penetrating personality among the realities of life, American life. Indeed, I have no hesitation in saying that Leaves of Grass is charged with the quality of a live man, not of his mind merely, but of his body also, his presence, as no other modern poem is. This does not make it acceptable to the popular taste, but it makes a real and living production, and a wellspring of stimulating human influences. The great poem must appeal to something more than our sense of the beautiful, indispensable as this is. There is our sense of power, our sense of life, our sense of magnitude, our sense of the universal, our religious and patriotic sense, all these must be addressed also. There is in current criticism an assumption, often stated, often implied, that the sole office of literature is to amuse, to entertain. The poet is a nimble skater, who cuts curious and beautiful flourishes up and down over the deeps and shallows of life. The mass of current poetry aims at little more than this. English poetry in general has aimed at little more than this. That is, it has no deep spiritual significance. The great currents are untouched, uninfluenced by it. But if this can be said of Whitman's poetry, then it is a failure. His work has deepest reference to patriotism, to nationality, to character, and to those things that make life strong and full. 
It bears the stamp of profound conviction and seriousness, and if it does not do something more to you than merely to entertain you, it will not do that. But I must not continue in this strain. It is now twenty-five years since I first made the personal acquaintance of our poet, and over twenty years since I first used my pen in his behalf. The memory of those years, those years in Washington, during the latter half of the war and later, I think will be the last to leave me. My life since then has been poor and thin in comparison. Those walks and talks, the great events that filled the air, Whitman in the pride and power of his manhood, the eloquent and chivalrous spirit of William D. O'Connor, so lately passed away, and whose presence among you today, as I knew him then, would be like music and banners, my own eager youth and enthusiasm, all combined to make those years the most memorable of my life. But they are gone. A quarter of a century has passed. O'Connor is no more. Our good gray poet, whom he so gallantly defended, has reached his seventieth year, and I am sequestered here, on the banks of the Hudson, delving in the soil and trying to give the roots of my life a fresh start, looking wistfully to the past, hungering for the old friends of the old days, and regretting many things, among others, regretting that I am not with you and sharing your festivities on this occasion. Richard Maurice Buck, London, Ontario, May twenty-second, 1889 it was a good thought to mark, as you are doing, the day upon which our great friend attains to the age of threescore and ten years. And when I say that I wish I could be with you, and grieve that I cannot, believe me, these are no mere formal words. The friend whom we today seek to honor is no ordinary man, and it is well that all of us who have some appreciation of what he is, how great and beneficent his life has been, it is well, I say, that we should, on all suitable occasions, manifest our affection and reverence. You will not expect that within the narrow compass of a letter I should try to say, even in brief, what our poet has for the last twenty-five years been to me, and what today are my feelings toward him. Should I attempt in my crude, bald phrases, to make such a statement, I should expect nothing else than to be charged with gross exaggeration. I will not make any such attempt, but will simply state that as my life has advanced from youth until now past middle age, a closer and closer knowledge of Walt Whitman and his writings has served more and more to deepen my early conviction that in this man the modern world has the embodiment of its highest ideal of manhood. That, in fact, as a distinguished living writer once said to me, Walt Whitman is the Savior, the Redeemer, of the modern world. And I want to say that however absurd or even blasphemous such words may sound to some, they were originally spoken in all seriousness and reverence, and are repeated now deliberately and with a full realization of their profound significance. Walt Whitman has, as I believe, lived the highest life yet. That life will be more and more studied and emulated, will sink deeper and deeper into the heart of the race, until the social, human world, through his aid, will reach a level hitherto unattained, even unlooked for. For this new life, so far undreamed, buried in the vast womb of the future, has not yet become, to the world at large, an object even of aspiration. But the spark has been set to the prepared fuel. The living glow has crept deeply into the dormant mass, and even now tongues of flame begin to shoot forth. Within no long time the fire will burst out and be seen by all. Thirty-four years ago Walt Whitman wrote, The proof of a poet is that his country absorbs him as affectionately as he has absorbed it. This proof, in his case, is even now being given. The absorption has begun and will go on. Nothing can arrest it. 
Within fifty years our great poet, far better known then than to his closest friends at present, will stand out before all eyes the typical American. That is to say, the typical modern, the source and center of a new spiritual aspiration saner and manlier than any heretofore. Say to my friends how dearly I should like to join them in personal greetings to our loved and honored good gray poet. William Sloan Kennedy, Belmont, Massachusetts, May 26, 1889. The celebration of our reverend friend's 70th birthday is first of all a tribute of personal affection. But in the large point of view, Walt Whitman is precious to humanity for the general principles he presents and represents, for his superb sketch of a moral life based on deepest scientific philosophy. He is the evangelist of the human heart and the prototype of the brain and body of the future. The office of such men in the world economy is to break up stereotyped thought and institutions and set free the creative force again, and the hammer that smites and the arrow that flies and the hand that wields are not tools of the deity, but are the deity itself at work. Having myself fought my way out of the thorny and beggarly wilderness of Christian orthodoxy, Walt Whitman has been to me chiefly of value for his manly ethics and his fresh and joyous paganism, in such quick opposition to the sickly anti-naturalism of historical Christianity. And I think this libertine influence of his words is spreading far and wide. Every week brings evidence. He is studied and magazined in Rome, Paris, London, Edinburgh, and St. Petersburg. From Zurich, we have recently received a volume of excellent translations out of Leaves of Grass. In Paris, Monsieur Sarazan has brought out in book form one of the best estimates of Whitman yet published. While from all parts of Great Britain, he is ever and anon receiving letters of heartfelt acknowledgment. Doubtless the rapidity and extent of the circulation of leaves of grass in Great Britain are partly due to the appearance there of clipped editions. Whitman's revolutionary doctrine of the body would otherwise have made the diffusion of his works nearly as slow there as here. In a recent story in Harper's Monthly, an American writer represents one of her English characters as quoting from Walt Whitman in conversation and adds, with stinging satire, no American present recognized the quotation. Yet it is unnecessary to say that in the higher literary circle and the manly circles of America, Whitman is ardently loved. Here, in the eastern New England section of the country, one notes in the representative people the stiff and severe plagiarism of the Puritan type. English cant in religion and grasping greed in business strike hands with the haughty intellectual pride of Harvard College conservatism, and scowl upon any brave foray out of the ranks of conventionalism. In his New York inauguration address, even our genial New Englander James Russell Lowell says, on the general theme of American literature, it would be more profitable to think that we have as yet no literature, in the highest sense, than to insist that what we have should be judged by other than admitted standards, merely because it is ours. Surely there spoke the very spirit of Cambridge scholasticism. Imagine the wise dons of Michelangelo's time, shaking their heads and saying, These sculptures won't do. They are not approved by the admitted standards. So the French thought Shakespeare's incomparable creations the wildest rant because not judgeable by the admitted standards. And similar criticisms were bestowed at first upon the poems of Hugo, the paintings of Turner, and the musical dramas of Wagner. Let the dons keep within their walls. 
their atmosphere is fatal to genius. Science is a good thing, but it is not poetry, and it is the antithesis of art. The study of Greek and Roman life, especially, is strangely productive of haughty aristocratic pride. To the class of intellectual aristocrats, Walt Whitman might say in the words of Browning's jolly Aristophanes, Away pretense to some exclusive sphere, cloud nourishing in soul-selected few, fume fed with self-superiority. I stand up for the common, coarse-as-clay existence. Make haste from your unreal eminence, and measure lengths with me upon that ground. Well, dear Walt, accept a thousand good wishes from one who, though he first knew you late in your life, 1880, still finds that in you the snows of age have not quenched the fire of love, and though encountering much that is baffling in that impassive Dutch-English nature of yours, yet perseveres in signing himself a candidate for your affection. As I write, in the open air, a fresh open breeze is setting in. I glimpse sails, and the white gleaming sea-water over yonder beyond Medford, and is blowing around the old lane, erst trod by the feet of young Emerson, the honey-smelling fragrance of wild cherry blossoms. We still have hope that the early season will bring on the rosebuds in time for your birthday. But if it should not do so, look for them later. Sidney H. Morse Chicago, Illinois, May 27, 1889. Could I be present with you at the celebration of Walt's 70th birthday, it would yield me great and lasting pleasure. But I am here on the open road, doing such work as falls to me, and cannot leave it now and turn back even to greet our good friend and comrade with birthday congratulations and love. There are those living in my memory, Walt conspicuous among them, who are in no way represented by years. I never think of their age. They are simply themselves, the same yesterday, today, and forever. They are, to quote our poet, time always without break. I have learned this well, becoming acquainted with the different persons of whom I have sought to give some account in clay. At what age, I am asked, and have to reply, to be serious and truthful, at no age. I have sought for the personality, the mental poise, the spirit, the outlook. What is it he is? What does he see? How he salutes me, not by years, few or many, but as a living soul. These, and such as these, are the questions I delight to answer in my clay, and with words when I can find them. So, now, turning to Walt Whitman, that he is seventy does not much signify. That he will ever be other than alive is a thought that does not cross my mind. One of the eternal verities he must be, and would be, though he had never written his book. But with his poems comes anew the word that, by whomsoever spoken, does not pass away. It is a new clue to the infinite beyond. I tramp, he says, a perpetual journey. And, to look up and down no road but it stretches and waits for you, however long but it stretches and waits for you. To know the universe itself as a road, as many roads, as roads for traveling souls. Walt is the sole traveler, democratic, for he would greet and have along with him all souls else. And this is why he is a maker of poems. The maker of poems settles justice, reality, immortality. His insight and power encircle things and the human race. Edmund Clarence Stedman, Kelp Rock, Newcastle, New Hampshire, May 27, 1889.
Thank you for inviting me, as one of Walt Whitman's friends, to join the festival in honor of our poet's 70th birthday. You know it would give me satisfaction to be with you. But your letter reached New York after I had left upon a brief visit to this island, being in need of relief from illness and continuous work. All I can do is to give my heartiest love to Whitman, with congratulations upon his entering, with Lowell, the decade of life which Whittier and Holmes have so lustily rounded. For him, too, in his own fine phrase, from noon to starry night, may the omens be propitious. May long it be, ere we are called upon, to say to Walt Whitman, the untold want by life and land ne'er granted. Now, voyager, sail thou forth to seek and find. Frank B. Sanborn, Concord, Massachusetts, May 29, 1889. The name of my ancient friend, Walt Whitman, does indeed awaken in me a response, for at no time since Emerson directed my attention to his leaves of grass in 1855 have I failed to notice what he was saying or doing. Not always with complete approval, of course, that he did not expect nor indeed wish, as I suppose, his course through his own time being made, like the course of a boat through the water, by resistance of the surrounding medium to his efforts. If the water should not resist and push against our oars, which of us could make any headway? But the voyage of Whitman has been a bold and forward one, guided by the stars and not by the wind and currents. He has tugged manfully, at the oars, and has had his own compass to steer by. I lament that it is now so nearly over, and that my little boat must apparently run on for a few years without having his noble barge within hail. Such are the conditions of this world's navigation, to which none of my contemporaries have known how to submit more gracefully than Whitman, taking his orders, as we all must, from that great sailing-master whose is the fleet and the ocean, and the seaman himself. I would fain send a message to Whitman on this special occasion, since I cannot be present with him and you and all his friends. And it shall be a verse from my neighbor Ellery Channing, who alone of surviving American poets can vie with Whitman in the grand manner of the older singers. Brave be thy heart, O sailor of the world. Erect thy vision, strong and resolute. Let disappointment strike, and leaden days visit thee like a snowdrift across flowers. Even in a little this rude voyage is done. Then heave the time-stained anchor, trim thy sails, and o'er the bosom of the untrammeled deep ride in the heavenly boat, and touch near stars. William Dean Howells, Boston, Massachusetts, May 21, 1889. I am too far away to be able to dine with you in celebration of the 70th birthday of the great poet whom you share with the whole English-speaking world. But I am not too far to wish him, through you, health and larger and larger life. It will be a long life here, in the memories of all who know how to value a liberator in any kind. John G. Whittier, Amesbury, Massachusetts, May 24, 1889. I have received thy kind letter and the invitation to the proposed observance of W. Whitman's 70th birthday. At my age, and in my state of health, I can only enclose a slight token of goodwill, with the wish that he may have occasion to thank God for renewed health and many more birthdays, and for the consolation which must come from the recollection of generous services rendered to the sick and suffering Union soldiers in the hospitals of Washington during the Civil War. Sylvester Baxter, Boston, Massachusetts, May 29, 1889. 
I wish I might give adequate expression to my regret at inability to attend your celebration of our great poet's seventieth birthday. I am indebted to my friend and colleague, Frederick Russell Guernsey, of the Herald, and now resident in Mexico, for my first knowledge of the greatness and beauty of Whitman's verse. Before, I had shared the average prejudice born of ignorance, but when I had once been persuaded to read his grand words, a new world of glory and beauty was open to my vision. Among my pleasantest recollections is that of first meeting Whitman when he came to Boston to read his lecture on the anniversary of Lincoln's death, and of the many delightful hours passed with him on his subsequent visit, when he spent several weeks here preparing his completed Leaves of Grass for publication. When I think of what I would like to say, I remember Leaves of Grass, and that it has all been said there. But as I write, the thought occurs to me that this is the month of the laurel's bloom, that I have just seen the starry flowers illuminating its evergreen masses with their pure brightness on the mountain tops around Chattanooga, the historic heights of Lookout and of Walden's Ridge, and that, speeding homewards, I saw the same glorious floral clusters adorning the New England hillsides. Our national flower, then, should be the mountain laurel, whose branches form the crowns of poets and of heroes, that, as we see it blooming from south to north, tells us we gaze that our country is one, reunited in bonds stronger than ever. Of all the honored men whom America rightly loves as its poets, and who, on the day that sees them reach the end of seven decades, have bared their heads to receive the laurel wreath from their fellows, I hail Walt Whitman as the greatest, the one who has attained the greatest measure of a great individuality in identifying himself with his fellows of all degrees in his wonderful sympathy that has enabled him to live their lives and think their thoughts, to sound the dark depths of human nature and soar high in the illimitable expanse of the human soul. The verdict of posterity will be, I believe, that no other poet whom our rich country has known has so grandly achieved the task set to all men in the divine impulse implanted in every bosom of epitomizing in one individual the life of the world. America owes Walt Whitman her everlasting gratitude for the high standard of patriotic aspiration and duty he has set in his words for his countrymen, whose sacred torch shall be passed down the centuries by the unknown bearers they shall inspire, bound together by the invisible ties of comradeship, continually lighting the way that leads the race towards the yet unimaginable heights rising in the broadening perspective of democratic vistas. By learning the lesson that only by living each for all and all for each can true and great individuality be attained, we shall see the grand words liberty, equality, and fraternity in their real meanings and make them the foundation for our nation that without them can be but the mockery of its form. As one of the humblest of those comrades, and with honor and love for Walt Whitman, I inscribe myself. T. B. Aldrich, Boston, Massachusetts, May twentieth, 1889 I have just returned from a vacation, and shall not be able to leave home again so soon or I would certainly make the pilgrimage to Camden to greet Walt Whitman on his seventieth birthday. I did myself the honor, a while ago, to remind W. W. of my remembrance of him. Felix Adler, New York, May 18, 1889 It is altogether lamentable that I must miss the dinner. I am sure you know, and Walt Whitman will appreciate, what a sacrifice it is for me to stay away, and how much, and how affectionately, I am in harmony with those who will sit around the festive board. It is no mere façon parler to say that I sincerely regret my inability to be present. Horace Howard Furness, Wallingford, Pennsylvania, 
May 27, 1889. I deeply regret that my engagements will not possibly permit me to be present, and that I cannot thus testify my respect and admiration for him whom you will meet to honor. He has lived to find. The stubborn thistles bursting into glossy purples, which outredden all voluptuous garden roses. From the heights of a life invisibly true to the ideals of his youth, unswerving throughout in his honesty, standing four square to all the winds that blow, with a heart instantly sensitive to every impulse of beauty, he must know of a surety that eternal sunshine will settle on his head. With profound respects to him, and thanks to you. George W. Childs, Philadelphia, May 22, 1889 My dear old friend, I want to be present to congratulate you on your 70th birthday and to tell you how glad I am that kind Providence has preserved your health and given you as many appreciative friends. God bless you. Enclosed was a printed slip, reading as follows. Cambridge, March 13th, 1877. My dear Mr. Childs, you do not know yet what it is to be seventy years old. I will tell you so that you may not be taken by surprise when your turn comes. It is like climbing the Alps. You reach a snow-crowned summit and see behind you the deep valley stretching miles and miles away, and before you other summits, higher and whiter, which you may have strength to climb, or may not. Then you sit down and meditate, and wonder which it will be. That is the whole story. Amplify it as you may. All that one can say is that life is opportunity. With seventy good wishes to the dwellers on Walnut Street, corner of 22nd, yours very truly, Henry W. Longfellow. Mark Twain, Hartford, Connecticut, May 24, 1889 To Walt Whitman You have lived just the seventy years which are greatest in the world's history and richest in benefit and advancement to its peoples. These seventy years have done much more to widen the interval between man and the other animals than was accomplished by any five centuries which preceded them. What great births you have witnessed! The steam press, the steamship, the steel ship, the railroad, the perfected cotton gin, the telegraph, the telephone, the phonograph, the photograph, the photogravure, the electrotype, the gaslight, the electric light, the sewing machine, and the amazing infinitely varied and innumerable products of coal tar, those latest and strangest marvels of a marvelous age. And you have seen even greater births than these, for you have seen the application of anesthesia to surgery practice, whereby the ancient dominion of pain, which began with the first created life, came to an end in this earth forever. You have seen the slave set free. You have seen monarchy banished from France and reduced in England to a machine which makes an imposing show of diligence and attention to business, but isn't connected with the works. Yes, you have indeed seen much, but tarry yet a while, for the greatest is yet to come. Wait thirty years, and then look out over the earth. You shall see marvels upon marvels added to those whose nativity you have witnessed. And conspicuous above them, you shall see their formidable result, man, at almost his full stature at last, and still growing, visibly growing while you look. In that day, who that hath a throne or a gilded privilege not attainable by his neighbor, let him procure his slippers and get ready to dance, for there is going to be music. Abide and see these things. Thirty of us who honor and love you offer the opportunity. We have among us six hundred years, good and sound, left in the bank of life. Take thirty of them. The richest birthday gift ever offered to a poet in this world and sit down and wait. 
wait till you see the great figure appear, and catch the far glint of the sun upon his banner. Then you may depart satisfied, as knowing you have seen him for whom the world was made, and that he would proclaim that human wheat is worth more than human tares, and proceed to reorganize human value on that basis. With best wishes for a happy issue to a grateful undertaking. Will Carlton, Brooklyn, June 10th, 1889. My only way of learning about the Whitman testimonial was through the papers until my return home yesterday. It is needless to say that had it been possible, I would have enjoyed participating in that tribute of respect and affection to one whom all that read with the soul as well as the eye admire so much. Give Walt Whitman my kindest regards and hopes that we shall have a chance to give him many good birthday dinners yet. William W. Salter, Chicago, May 27, 1889 I have my first chance this morning to think of your kind invitation, and feel it an honor to be asked to say a word on so important an occasion. The few moments I was privileged to see Whitman through your friendliness will remain with me as a rare recollection. Such simplicity and dignity, all the more touching because of physical weariness, one does not often see blended in this fast-rushing time. I seem to be transported to the times of the old patriarchs and the large utterance of the early gods. Not anything he said, but his way of saying it, and the figure of the man, will never be forgotten by me. John W. Chadwick, Brooklyn, May 24, 1889 It would give me great pleasure to assist in doing honor to Walt Whitman on his 70th birthday, but it so happens on the 31st instant I shall be in Boston fulfilling an engagement made long since. I am very sure that in the crowd who will be there to honor the venerable poet I shall not be missed, but I do not like to miss the opportunity of meeting one whom I have long held in reverence. We have had plenty of poets who, while imagining themselves lovers of nature, have done their best to hide under her pretty words. And we have had plenty of preachers who, while imagining that they love God, despise his handiwork. I love and honor Whitman for all his different way, his glad acceptance of the world and all that it contains, his boundless faith in nature, man, immortality, and God. May he enjoy the day and many days to come, ere he goes on without a fear. George H. Boker, Philadelphia, May 28, 1889 I have a great regard for Whitman, both as a poet and as a noble example of manhood and I shall always be ready to do anything that may tend to his comfort or his relief. Please to express to him my regret at not being able to meet him at the proposed dinner, from which hard necessity forces me to be absent. John A. Cockrell, World Office, New York, May ninth, 1889 I regret that my duties prevent my joining with you in your proposed tribute to the poet Whitman on his 70th birthday. America owes much to the strong, rugged, virile pen of this lover of man and nature. Every line that he has written pulsates with manhood and is sentient with a touch of broad humanity. It is gratifying to know that his work is growing in the esteem of all true friends of literature, and that his great thoughts will live when the jingling rhymes of some of our sweet-voiced poets are forgotten. Julius Chambers, World Office, New York, May 27, 1889 My dear good gray poet, I have received the word which you were thoughtful and kind enough to send me, and with it your expression of a desire that I should be present at the dinner which your appreciative fellow countrymen are about to give you in commemoration of your birthday. 
I thank you, my dear sir, for your remembrance, and shall cherish it as long as I live. I am a much overworked young man, though only starting out in life, as compared with your years of fruitful effort, and cannot go to Camden, much as I would wish to. When I say that I respect you, you will understand me. Were I to say that I love you, I would only speak the truth. Yours is a great, big personality, and your hallmark on English verse will endure as long as the language itself. George William Curtis West New Brighton, Staten Island, New York, May 26, 1889 I am very sorry that I shall be unable to attend the dinner in honor of Mr. Whitman's completion of his seventieth year, but I wish to join in the tribute to a man who has bravely and quietly walked by his inner light, and who has never quitted his belief whenever it was his belief, as Emerson says, that a pop-gun is a pop-gun, though the ancient and honorable of the earth affirm it to be the crack of doom. Jeanette L. Gilder, Critic Office, New York, May 29, 1889. In reply to yours of the 26th, I can only say that Mr. Whitman has always had my best wishes, and they are his for many years to come, I hope. When you drink his health, take two sips from your glass, and let one be from me to his long life and every happiness. John Haberton, Fortress Monroe, Virginia, May 29, 1889. I greatly regret that absolute necessity of being in New York Friday, p.m., will prevent me joining personally in the testimonial to good old Walt, but I certainly will try to put my heart on paper to the best of my ability in the old man's honor. William C. Gannett, Hinsdale, Illinois, May twentieth, 1889. May he live as long as loving and being loved can make life beautiful to him. In Mr. Morse's studio, I last week saw a noble picture of him with his arms around the children. H. D. Bush, Lacking Locks, P. Q., May twentieth, 1889. You will doubtless understand, what I can perhaps not explain, why I feel such a debt of gratitude towards Walt Whitman. I hope to be able to see him sometime and thank him for his poems and his life work, now, I suppose, nearly ended. There are many of Mr. Whitman's poems which any right-minded person ought to enjoy. Perhaps it is my experience with working men and ability to understand and succeed with them through my sympathy for them which enables me to enjoy some of the poems which the critics most delight to ridicule. And Mrs. Bush has been deeply touched by his appreciation of music. Please give our respectful regards to him and our congratulations on his approaching 70th birthday. Richard J. Hinton, Washington, D.C., May 30th, 1889. My dear Walt, let me send my hand and heart to you in this pen scrawl, bearing loving, reverential congratulations to you on your 70th birthday. I'm so glad you are still here in your familiar form. The other Walt, the comrade of all, will be among us always. Accept then, by love, by hopes of other birthdays, my fraternal and gladsome kiss and word on this birthday. I would have liked to have been at the dinner, but as I did not know of it till within two days, I could not arrange. My wife joins me fully. J. F. Garrison, Camden, New Jersey, May 23, 1889 I am particularly sorry 
not to be able to join with you in your expression of respect and admiration for one so widely and deservedly recognized wherever the English language is spoken as a poet and a thinker of high rank and place among the noteworthy poets of the time, whom also most or perhaps all of us, have valued not only as a writer, but in the simple and unostentatious character of the genial and respected friend. But even more than the genius of the poet do I admire and honor Mr. Whitman for traits which I am sure he would himself place higher than any reputation that his writings may have given him. End of section 5